Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hello. And fourth-year medical student, Yasmin Dekama. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, everyone. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about bringing dignity to the bedside. And to do that, we're honored to have as our guest again, Dr. Harvey Chachanoff. Dr. Chachanoff is a psychiatrist and distinguished professor at the University of Manitoba and senior scientist at Cancer Care Manitoba Research Institute. His seminal publications addressing psychosocial dimensions of palliation have helped define core competencies and standards of end-of-life care. He is the co-founder of the Canadian Virtual Hospice, which is the world's largest repository of web-based information and support for dying patients their families, and healthcare providers. His book, Dignity Therapy, Final Words for Final Days, was the 2011 winner of the Prose Award. He's the co-editor of the Handbook of Psychiatry and Palliative Medicine. In 2020, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, and his latest book just released is Dignity and Care, The Human Side of Medicine. Dr. Chachanoff, Harvey, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. Glad to be here. I want to just get it started. What do you, what does it mean to bring dignity to the bedside? Why is that important for us to talk about that? Well, I, I think it's important because, um, I mean, in the hurly burly of, uh, you know, contemporary medicine, um, we oftentimes forget about, um, the human side of medicine. So we're very, uh, I mean, understandably and importantly, um, addressing, you know, the biological, the physiological, uh, the technical dimensions of medicine. But, uh, and, and maybe I'll, I'll summarize it this way. A number of years ago, I wrote a paper uh, and I called it, the secret is out, patients are people with feelings that matter. <laughs> so guess what? You know, the secret is out, patients are people with feelings that matter. So why is it important that we bring dignity to the bedside? Because we're talking about looking after people. Um, you know, if we were talking about looking after machines, uh, inanimate objects, none of this stuff would matter. Uh, you know, steel, uh, aluminum doesn't have feelings. But as long as we're dealing with people and flesh and blood, um, we need to be aware that patients are people with feelings that matter. So when we started to think about this, uh, I mean, and again, did a lot of research in this area. I mean, one of the things that we learned from our research is that patients found, you know, and again, one of the most profound things that undermined their sense of dignity, a feeling that dignity was intact, had to do with how they perceived themselves to be seen. You know, in other words, how they viewed themselves to be appreciated or not appreciated by others. Um, and again, for me, this was really uh, an epiphany. Uh, I, in fact, I, I wrote a separate article on it called um, Dignity in the Eye of the Beholder. And this was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And, and the point that I make, and again, this is, this is based on the data, but the point that I make is that metaphorically, patients look towards us 
the healthcare provider for a reflection in our eye that will affirm their sense of dignity, which is a bit of a mouthful. So let me put it this way. If you, the patient, are looking at the healthcare provider and the only thing you see reflected in the eye of the healthcare provider is a differential diagnosis or a problem checklist, then you feel that personhood has been eclipsed by patienthood. You feel like, what about me? You know, like, don't I matter? And, you know, the truth is that none of us like to see ourselves as kind of an amalgam of limbs and organs and orifices and body fluids. I mean, we are fundamentally those things. But people get turned off when they see themselves as being seen as an amalgam of, of those constituent parts. Why? Because personhood gets left out. So what I've spent a lot of my career, and certainly in the last couple of decades, looking at is how can we change the lens of the healthcare provider? You know, and which again is a is a strange thing because in, in, in medicine, and certainly in my work, you always think about well, what can we do differently to the patient or what can we do with their family? What the evidence was saying is, you know, we better be very clear about what, what goes on between our ears, because if, if it's true that patients are looking for this reflection from us, then we better understand, well, what do we do? I mean, what, what happens in our head, in our psyche, in our soul when we walk into the room with that patient, if we're expected to offer that kind of affirmation. So as I say, much of the work that we've done has looked at, you know, how can we change the lens? How can we put personhood on the clinical radar? And how how is it that we do that honor personhood in a clinical setting, in the clinical arena, and practice being clinicians who are aware of potential biases and how our own thoughts might impact care? Oh, Yasmin, I think I could speak about that for the remainder of our time. But, um, well, let, let me start. I mean, we have you know, found a variety of ways of doing it, but one of the most, one of the simplest and in some ways, you know, kind of intriguing because it is so simple and straightforward is we have been uh, looking at something called the patient dignity question, which basically asks, what do I need to know about you as a person in order to take the best care of you possible? Now, uh, and again, I, I would suggest, I mean, that's not a palliative care question um, or just an internal medicine question. That is a human question. Mm. You know, um, it, it transcends all of medicine. That's and an excellent fact, question. And um, what we do in order to study it is we go to the bedside and this is what we've done in studies. Uh, we've gone to the bedside of patients and have said, um, we know a lot about you clinically but we know far less about who you are as a human being. So tell us, who are you or what do I need to know about you as a person in order to take the best care of you possible? This is the beginnings of what is a five to 10 minute conversation tops. And we're interested in, you know, what is their, you know, what other people have used the metaphor of, of thread. What is their thread? You know, what is their essence? So. What are you worried about? What are your values? What are your beliefs? In some ways, it's the equivalent of saying to a patient, okay, look, you get to pick the glasses through which your healthcare provider team is going to see you. 
So tell us how those glasses should be shaped. You know, what do you want them to see? You know, and obviously, I mean, you know, they're already looking at your limbs and orifices and orifices and body fluids. You want them to see you. So what's that going to take? Well, we've had people tell us, you know, I've been the victim of of, of childhood abuse. Um, I was a homesteader, you know, and I have 16 great grandchildren. I was a former department head of internal medicine. I had a patient who was a former department head of internal medicine who said he wanted the words PIP, or the letters PIP, P-I-P, placed on his bed post, which stood for previously important person. So the, the point is that people say things, they tell us things, that change the way we see them. You know, um, I want people to know, you know what my achievements were, or I want them to know what my responsibilities are. I, one woman who we saw in hospital she said, I want you to know that the reason I'm sad is my son is dying from cancer at a hospital, the river across from where I'm being looked at. So we listen to these conversations, we um, summarize them into a paragraph or two, and then we come back to the bedside to read it, to find out is there anything that you would like to edit? And then the litmus test, and that is, do you want this placed on your chart? I can tell you in our research, and in research that now, I mean, this is now being picked up by other programs. There was recently a, a study that came out of Memorial Sloan Kettering in which they used the patient dignity question in over 2,000 palliative care consultations. Mm -hmm. um, so we place it on the chart in order to try and put personhood on the radar. What have the results been? really quite extraordinary and that is that you know patients invariably say this is important information for my healthcare provider to know almost a hundred percent of them say this is something that other patients families should do and all of them all of them give permission to have it on their chart everyone says this is how I want to be seen in essence we actually did a study of this during the COVID-19 pandemic and we did this in um family members of people who are now on in intensive care and on ventilators and it was extraordinary we would call them at home again ask the pdq a patient dignity question what would you want us to know about your loved one who's now you know on a ventilator and uh, i remember talking to well i mean there's one example i'll never forget of a, a young woman whose mother was on a ventilator and she said you know uh, i mean my mom had me when i was very young she was in her late teens um she lost another daughter likely this daughter was, was murdered um the mother had become a community role model and she ended off her response by saying ever since my mother got into hospital I've been looking for a way to let everybody know that she's no ordinary patient. Mm. And here she found a way to be able to say that. So the PDQ or the patient dignity question is one way of being able to say, here's a very simple opportunity to put personhood on the radar. I, I was talking to a, a group of clinicians from a, a very large medical corporation uh, hospital, who, whose name I won't mention just to protect anonymity. And there was a neurologist on the telephone call who said, you know, whatever we do, it's gotta be quick. You know, I'm really busy. Mm. I said, well, is this quick enough? And I explained it to him and how it works. And now at this major medical center, they are now routinely asking patients or trying to implement oh, wow. asking patients, who do we need to know about? What do we need to know about you as a person? 
to take the best care of you possible. And, you know, think about it. I mean, if somebody, I mean, all of those stories that I shared, whether or not you've been a victim of, of abuse or whether or not you were a department chair or you have 16 grandchildren or, you know, you're a champion bowler in your neighborhood. How, I mean, how can you care for people and not know things about them that are so quintessentially, that are so fundamentally who they are as human beings, you know? And some people will say, you know, there's not enough time and, you know, really, is that part of medicine? I think, you know, as long as we're dealing with human beings, you know, patients are people with feelings that matter. I would say yes. And it doesn't need to take a lot of time. It's it's acknowledgement, acknowledgement of personhood. Yeah. And I, I hear that it's a practice that could be quite brief and very meaningful, both to the patient and also possibly to the provider team. I feel like the um, data and work that your team did from about like five years ago also explored what the experience was like for the healthcare provider as Absolutely. well. Yeah. And I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that. Well, I mean, and again, I mean, the results are are, are important, especially in view of what's happening in medicine today, you know, post-COVID mm. or, or, or in the midst of, you know, whatever stage of COVID we're at now, which is, I mean, we've got a very stressed healthcare team. Um, you know, you see people who are becoming, uh, in some instances, more emotionally disconnected from the pathos of what it means to look after a patient and instead are, are rapidly simply trying to get the technical facets of their job done. And we know that that kind of dynamic is a harbinger for burnout. What we found in our data, because we also got data from healthcare providers who had read these, not only did they find out something about the patient they didn't previously know in more than 90% of instances, but they felt more empathic, they felt more connected, uh, they felt mm -hmm. more respect, and by the by, they felt a heightened satisfaction for their work. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that in some ways, you know, it's not, you know, can we afford the time? I would say, well, can you really afford not to not do, do person-centered care? You know, because, I mean, the time that people get really in medicine is when they feel that they've been treated with lack of kindness. You know, medical misadventure, unfortunately, happens occasionally. But the vast majority of reasons why you will be taken to task, you know, why you will be litigated is because... There is a medical miscommunication in which people feel that personhood wasn't acknowledged. You know, mm. they felt like they were treated just like a patient, impersonal and generic. So my retort to we don't have enough time is I don't think we can afford not to do person-centered care, both for the purposes of the patient and the healthcare provider who's going to be in a better position because of heightened satisfaction and less vulnerability to burnout. Wow. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking to Dr. Harvey Chachanov about bringing dignity to the bedside. Tosha. Along the same lines, um, one of the things I read about your work is the platinum rule. Can you talk to us about the platinum rule? So, I mean, the platinum rule has been a, a very interesting experience uh, in terms of just how rapidly it's been kind of uh, taken up and embraced, not only in, in palliative care, but, but 
more broadly. I mean, I was I, I, somebody sent me an article that was published by PLOS One, um, and it was looking at person-centered care in athletic trainers, people who are training professional athletes. And they wrote about uh-huh. person-centered care and said that the platinum rule has now replaced the golden rule in the standard of person-centered care. And this hasn't even been out for a year. So the idea of it is that when you think about uh, how we uh, approach patients and, and again, trying to understand personhood, oftentimes we impose an external standard, which is how would I want to be treated in this situation? How would I want a loved one to be treated in this situation? In other words, we use ourselves as this kind of gold met, golden rule or gold yardstick or barometer of how to proceed, you know, what the patient might want or need, right? which is certainly uh, something that you see in uh, religious uh, uh, writings and um, uh, denominations uh, across millennia. And it's an important element of being a compassionate human being. So what is the issue? Well, the issue is that our lived experience may be diversely different, oftentimes is 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 diversely different. I mean, no two people, no two families, no two cultures are identical. And so if we assume that based on our lived experience, we can impose an evaluation that says, I know what you would need in this situation. All I have to do is look inward. Well, that may be the golden rule, but the platinum rule says, no, no, you need to look outward, which means you need to look not doing unto patients what you know they would would do unto patients as you would want done unto yourself but doing unto the patient as they would want done unto themselves so when i first published this there was an example that i gave of uh, and this was in the journal of palliative medicine um, of an elderly gentleman who had a a, an an advanced uh, head and neck malignancy and he sat down with a medical oncologist who basically tried to explain that you know this man would be facing a difficult course And at some point, he might want to consider something available in Canada since 2016, medical assistance in dying. And this was completely dissonant with this gentleman's outlook and worldview and and what he wanted. I mean, he was had a large family. He was a farmer. He wanted to do whatever treatment he could at the time so that he could be here for you know as long a period of time as as possible and in fact went on to have some uh, immunotherapy and, and did relatively well and achieved what he described as a good quality of life but the reason i use that example in describing the platinum rule is you have to say okay so what goes on inside of the mind of the oncologist who makes that recommendation likely his worldview is very different uh, from this older gentleman. And listen, our, our worldview is always different based, not because we are bad people, it's because we are people. We are raised, we are socialized in a way to say, certain things have value, you know, certain things have meaning. Um, and in, in Western culture, I mean, you know, youth, beauty, power, um, and anything less than that we deem, you know, could be of lesser value. So the other thing is that we end up either offering or withholding things that would lead to a path or help us avoid a path that we ourselves would find intolerable. So you can see where the golden rule, as opposed to a platinum rule, could cause discordance in terms of patients' goals of care. Uh, And in palliative care, we also know that um, 
the platinum rule is very important important when it comes to substitute decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is that, you know, if you're sitting at the bedside of a dying loved one and you're saying, okay, you know, like we know this is happening to your father now. The question isn't, what would you want done next? The question is, if we could bring your father into this room, what would he want done? So there is a, a platinum standard, if you will, that says we need to always consider the perspective of the patient. Um, and I also published a second article that was came out in uh, in JAMA Neurology uh, several months ago in which I talked about uh, my sister Ellen. I called it Seeing Ellen, the Platinum mm. Rule. And Ellen, you know, was born with cerebral palsy. Um, this particular article, and I'm not going to tell you the, the outcome of the article, it's available in the public domain, people can look it up online, and it's open access, but essentially talks about the challenges that she faced when she was seen by a, I think, a well-meaning, well-intentioned internist who basically saw her through the lens of somebody who maybe didn't understand disability or hadn't lived a life with, um, and well, basically uh, saw her life defined in terms of her disability rather mm -hmm. in terms of her abilities. And so a platinum standard says, you know, I better put myself inside of the mindset of somebody who's had a very rich life um, and a meaningful life. And so, um, and again, what's been shocking to me has been the, uh, the uptake. Uh, in fact, within the first two weeks of the Platinum Rule being published, I was approached by two colleagues from different parts of the country who said they had attended webinars or seminars on equity, diversity, inclusiveness, EDI, in which the Platinum Rule was cited. And wow. I think, you know, it could be a really interesting and exciting platform for EDI because what it says is we need to upfront identify our biases. We need mm -hmm. to say and recognize that we are biased. I mean, and again, this is not to be uh, negative or denigrating. It is simply to say part of being human is that, you know, we are raised uh, and therefore have a certain lens and worldview. And that's going to shape the way that we approach care, what we provide care for, what we value, what we don't value. You know, and the anxiety, you know, you think about, you know, I mean, I had one patient that I quoted in one of my uh, um, articles, who is a woman who lives with profound disability. Mm. And, you know, she talks about, you know, so how will I be viewed? You know, um, you know, am I too disabled? Am I too, you know, marginalized? Am I, uh, am I too, what, am I too much, uh, disabled to be someone that you see as continues to have, you know, meaning and value. So that's what the platinum rule is about. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of a, another exciting and interesting nuance of how we can do truly person-centered care. It this is, is very, oh, sorry, go ahead, Yasmin. I, I was just going to reflect that it, it is very much centered around personhood and patient-centered care. And I I appreciate a lot of the introspection that it requires of a clinician to ask and a trainee to ask like, huh, how, what, how might I be entering this space and what words might I be using? And maybe like you shared, offering different treatments or withholding different treatments. It's pretty, it can have profound impact. 
Go ahead, Aaron. And you know, and oh. it can be so subtle as well. You know, I remember one encounter that I was working with a a, a colleague who was uh, a, a gentleman with uh, who lived with lifelong disability, post polio. And I remember once I used the word wheelchair bound. I said, you know, so Jim, you know, you're wheelchair bound. And he stopped me on my tracks says, Harvey, I am not wheelchair bound. And I said, Jim, what, what's the problem here? And he said, Harvey, I am not wheelchair bound. I am wheelchair liberated. Mm. You know, because of this wheelchair, I have traveled the world and I have seen the world and had all these experiences. And wheelchair bound implies a certain um, perspective of suffering. I perceive you, you know, you are wheelchair bound. And listen, words shape thought and sh thought shapes words. So uh, language. So again, it, it, it's subtle, but it is so important because it does change the experience of each and every person who comes in to be provided care. Yeah, you've unleashed this basically uh, um, into the world where we now it's it's leading to so much more more dignity and respect and changing clinical practice. What you know, is there a, would you have recommendations about how each of us can do that, or then or maybe if you see a colleague that you feel is 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 more old school, where you're again looking at and an, analyzing orifices and and, and, and fluids <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> I like how you say that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great question, you know, because um, I mean, what we're talking about is, you know, um, I mean, how do you how do you change culture and, and how do you change uh, the culture of medicine? You know, um, you know, I mean, one clinician at a time, you know, by way of example and as well, um, I think, you know, by uh, you know, perhaps also um, empowering patients. I have some some colleagues, um, uh, Sammy Winemaker and Sin Xiao, uh, and they are uh, have a project they call the the Waiting Room Revolution. And what they say in in their work is, you know, we have tried to teach clinicians how to do this, and you know, we're we're slowly, hopefully, moving that needle, but it's not moving quickly enough. Um, and so. We need to also be doing things that raise patient expectation and educate patients. You know, sometimes the problem that patients have is that their expectations are too low. You know, they expect too little. You know, so so long as they can get the care that they came in, you know, the technical elements of care, they figure, you know, the rest they just kind of have to put up with. And you know, I mean, I, I mean, patient is an interesting word. You know, it, it you know, being a patient, somebody who is cared for. But being patient and, you know, it takes a lot of patience to be a patient and the sicker you are, the more patience it takes. Why? Because being a patient in many instances requires yielding to healthcare systems and giving up, you know, what it means to be you. You know, if you're not too sick, it means giving up some time or, you know, adjusting your schedule or having to wait in line in the clinic. But when you're really sick and you feel like, you know what, they stop seeing me. You know, that's when personhood isn't just bending, you know, that's when it's breaking. And it, it's not acceptable practice. I published an article a number of years ago, and maybe this is sort of a good note to end on because I know we're coming close to time, called the ABCDs of Dignity Conserving Care. And, you know, maybe that's a good answer to your question. You know, runoff copies and, you know, the holiday season is coming. Either a copy of my book or if you can't, don't want to put out that kind of cash, 
just run off a copy of the ABCs of Dignity Conserving Care, and uh, they make great stocking stuffers. You know, and it says, <laughs> these are the core efficiencies of medicine, your attitude, your behavior, compassion, and dialogue that acknowledges personhood. If you can't do that, you know, you know, like I said, cars don't have feelings, you know, they're not going to be hurt, you know, on an assembly line, you know, if you don't have a gentle touch. But for people, you know, patients are people with feelings that matter. The ABCs of dignity conserving care is need to be core efficiencies of what it means to be a healthcare provider. And also empowering patients to start a conversation. Is that what you would recommend if they're so, uh, you know, knowledgeable and enlightened and educated to kind of, may I share with you, doctor, like right at the very beginning, is that something you would recommend? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to give one recommendation that is going to apply for everyone, but you know, I mean, uh, you know, and I, I know that, you know, when my, when my mother was alive and my, my, my father, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful is, is still with us. And, uh, you know, if I ever have to, you know, take him to, uh, and, and when I took my mother to a doctor's appointment, I would make sure to make, sh I would make sure that they knew who this person was, you know, um, because, uh, we, that's, we want people to see the people that we care for um, as loved ones, you know, yes, as patients with needs, but as human beings that need to be acknowledged. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about bringing dignity bedside with Dr. Harvey Chachanoff. Harvey, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. My pleasure. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Tosha Yamaguchi and Yasmin Dakama. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions to the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. And now let's start our extended version. I want to, I, I forgot, I was going to give another shout out to your book. Please buy this book. Just released, just released last month, Dignity and Care, The Human Side of Medicine. Oxford University Press. Oxford University Press. You, yeah, I want to I want to kind of just go in a little bit deeper on um, how, you know, this, this can change culture in a way. What about just health systems? What, because, you know, I, you know, I'm, I have a, a certain uh, very um, uh, um, wide-ranging and um, uh, powerful HMO, and that's that. That's but I but I have noticed, and my family members have noticed that they can be um, they they don't I don't feel like they respect and honor mm. personhood as much as as possible. What what would what would it take to bring that to um, a, a health system? Are you do you feel like it's bottom up kind of thing, or how, what are, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I mean. I mean, we certainly have tried bottom up and, and bottom up takes a, a long time and is uh, it is tough slogging. Um, but each of us as individual can only begin with ourselves. But from from top up, I mean, I think, you know, the the argument that this is the nice thing to do, that this is, you know, the proper thing to do um, has limited resonance. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I try and take a, a, a different line when I'm talking to uh, people who are working in the healthcare system or people who are concerned about the bottom line. And I say, well, you know, I mean, 
we have a healthcare system that is strained. We have uh, people who are suffering from higher rates of, of, of burnout. Um, and you also have a kind of public image issue because, um, you know, litigation is a, a huge problem and nobody likes to find themselves in the court. So let's look at those issues. What can we do to avoid those issues? And although it sounds counterintuitive, what we can do about those issues is we can start addressing some of these, the non-technical facets of medicine. Because if we don't get that right, I mean, you know, I mean, people will forgive almost anything, but they won't forgive lack of kindness. You know, they, they will remember that. And you know what? Um, if they're feeling particularly litigious, they'll also sue you for that. You know, if they feel that they have been uh, misused, misunderstood, um, you know, certainly if they feel that they've been degraded, dehumanized, these are powerful, toxic, you know, caustic human feelings. Um, nobody wants to experience that. And healthcare systems don't want to spend their time having to litigate. These things can be prevented very quickly, you know, with these kinds of nuances that I'm sharing with you. Um, you know, and, and the difference they can make is profound. It, it doesn't, and it doesn't necessarily change the outcome. I mean, you know, medicine still can't solve everything. It can't cure everything. But if we can provide care that at least lets people know that they feel um, acknowledged um, and heard, that makes all the difference in the world. You know, I mean, as I say, I mean, my mother died this uh, last summer. And the final year of her life, I mean, I bore witness to the best of care and the worst of care. And the worst of care wasn't about medical misadventure or error. Um, the, the, the worst of care uh, was typically um, things that were dehumanizing. And, you know, they, they stick in my craw. I mean, I, I will be writing letters to the board of the hospitals where I felt that that was simply unacceptable. So if you're talking about healthcare systems, I say, I know you're worried about the bottom line. So let's make sure we protect our healthcare team so that they're not burnt out. And let's keep you out of courts and save you lots of money. And to do that, you need to attend to the human side of medicine. It sounds like with the example you spoke about where the patient dignity question will start being asked at one of the centers, um, I'm curious how that'll progress over time and what those impacts will be um, and if it's sustainable too. Once you, when you brought that up, I'd, I'd be really interested to find that out. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I think it is sustainable, um, but I also think that it is uh, sustainable in a way that will be dynamic. Mm. And by that, I mean, you know, I mean, the patient dignity question uh, is just meant to get personhood onto the clinical radar. It's a, it's a way of doing that. My sense is that once you start doing that and you start seeing the benefits of that, then it becomes, and attentiveness to personhood becomes part of the culture and part of the texture of providing care. So that it isn't necessarily that each healthcare system will be de facto implementing, you know, the PDQ and documenting in the way that I've described, but hopefully what it can do is it can help transform the culture of healthcare. 
I mean, a lofty goal, of course, but you know, why not? Why not choose lofty goals? Yeah. You know, I actually have a question about dignity therapy that came to mind since our, you know, episode on dignity therapy. Um, I wanted to just ask in terms of bringing dignity therapy to other countries, because I'm, I'm sure it's in part, uh, well, it's, it's practiced in other countries. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So have you seen, have you seen any patterns of how it's practiced in other countries or how it's received in other countries? Um, yeah, dignity therapy at this point is is, is pretty worldwide. Um, you know, there. I mean, certainly many uh, Western countries have dignity therapy uh, trials or programs, um, and I've seen dignity therapy um, publications coming out of uh, China, Japan, um, Taiwan. So it seems to have uh, cross cultural resonance. Wow. Um, I can't really comment on different patterns of, you know, issues that emerge in dignity therapy, but I guess my comment about uh, dignity therapy globally would be that the, the, the basic ideas in dignity therapy, you know, this, you know, the wish to have lived a life that might in some way leave a ripple effect or have an influence on the people that we leave behind those things seem to be uh, cross-cultural, that they, they transcend culture, um, which isn't to say that dignity therapy is applied um, with absolutely no nuances that recognize the importance of culture, because there, there are cultural nuances that people in, import and bring into dignity therapy and use it to inform dignity therapy in different contexts, which is exactly the way that it should be done. It's meant, it's not meant to be rigid. It's, it's meant to be malleable um, and fitting of the patient's needs. So in brief then, dignity therapy um, is adapted and has been adapted in various different cultural contexts, but the basic idea of dignity therapy and the need for generativity and transcendence is something that seems to really describe uh, the human condition. And that concludes this extended segment of the show.